0: Welcome back to 21st Century Women Podcast. And on this episode, we speak with Layla Yajani, COO of Little Bridge, which is an immersive games-based children's learning and media company based in the UK. And Layla is also the founder and co-chair of UNICEF Next Generation Europe. Here to talk about Little Bridge and UNICEF Next Generation. Europe both Existing to help the lives of children and our next generation. Welcome, Layla, to 21st Century Women. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks for having me. And you are in the UK, so we will say that there might be a little delay. Um, but it's a, what is it? What temperature and day is it over there? Tuesday morning, and what temperature is it?
1: Today is nine degrees Celsius in London, and it's sunny and lovely.
0: <laughs> and here of us, we think that nine degrees is the coldest day ever, and that's about as cold as it gets here for us. <laughs> um, but welcome, we love having you here and to start things off, um, I'd love to talk about Little Bridge, um, which was created to provide children access to key 21st century skills and attributes starting with English. So, Layla, can you tell us a little bit more about it and how it, well, little, little Bridge relies on educational technology to deliver these tools to children?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, kind of roll back a little bit, I'll, I'll first maybe take a minute just to explain to you how, how Little Bridge works and, and what it is um, before we kind of jump into how the technology kind of fits behind it and, and, and enables us to do what we do. So Little Bridge is a children's social learning company and media company. And the way Little Bridge works is a child anywhere in the world, whether they're at home or at school, can sign up log on, create an avatar, and join this global town called Little Bridge, where they become a citizen and get to participate in this community with children from all around the world. And the way that the the platform works is children learn English in a natural way, which we believe is a vital 21st century skill. Um, It is the language of the Internet and the operating system of the world. And with English, children have many other doors open for them. So it's an incredibly important um, tool to have in their toolbox. And the way they learn English is in a natural way, the way you and I learned English or our first languages. And they learn by being immersed in different narratives and stories and exploring and discovering the town in a very immersive way. And what's incredibly powerful that sits at the core of Little Bridge is but we give children a purpose to learn the language, and that purpose is to make friends with other children around the world who may be native or non-native speakers of English who are there to connect with other kids and and learn about each other and expand their their, their world views. Now we're talking kids six to twelve, so they might not come to the platform for that reason, but uh, children are incredibly social, and we know from evidence of kind of countless case studies in schools around the world that the social platform is a big part of the appeal of, of Little Bridge because it it creates a a realness to the learning experience that, that you don't see in other products. So that's kind of how it works from a user perspective. And the, the technology that that kind of sits behind Little Bridge. I mean we're fully in the cloud and we have built the technology to be Um, incredibly secure. And basically, it it allows us to um, have this beautiful town and this wonderful methodology that before technology being where it is, would not have been scalable to as many kids as it is now. So um, yeah, that's kind of a little bit about it and um, a a little bit very high level about the
0: tech. And then can you tell us, so it's Angel's from 6 uh, to 12 years old. And is it? Can anybody jump on board in terms of, you know, as sh- as kids in Australia? Is it for English-speaking kids already or is it for second, if, if English is your second or third language? So anyone,
1: anywhere can join the platform and communicate with other children in English. And if you're a native speaker, then the learning content um, won't be as relevant for you. Um, And perhaps the higher, higher levels of it might be of interest, but it's really the social component of the platform is is for everyone. So any child anywhere can get online, create their avatar, and start connecting with other kids around the world. And the community is fully moderated and safe. And communication can only be in English. And we have very, um, very strict safety models in place to ensure that you know children. Um, are not arranging meetings outside of the platform, no phone numbers are exchanged, no addresses are exchanged, and, and of course, all of the standard, you know, no bad words, no um, bullying, no unkind behavior, and, and fortunately we haven't had any issues, um, knock on wood, with, with that. So, yeah, kids from anywhere can join and make friends all over the world, and some of their friends will be learning English, and others might be native speakers. Um, in the UK or US and and we are seeing kind of sign up from from all over including um, English-speaking countries um, so yeah it's, it's for
0: everyone. Yeah it's really cool and so you do create this virtual community how does that work in terms of how many people can get on and talk to each other at once or is it that they speak face-to-face online or is it all um, written text how does that virtual community work?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's all text based today. And basically, once a child sets up their avatar, they can click on the globe in the bottom right hand corner of the platform and it appears and they can spin around the globe and have a view of all the different countries and see the users who've been online in those countries in the last, in the last 24 hours and, and click in and add friends and, and begin communicating straight away. Um, they'll also be receiving inbound friend requests. Once they have set up their profile um, and their avatar, and and a part of setting up that profile and avatar um, will involve posting things on their on their wall, which kind of looks like a, a bedroom wall, actually. So they can make the wall colorful and and post hobbies and other other um, interesting things about themselves. And and we find that children actually speak to one another about the things that they're interested in, what their dreams are, and and it's uh, it's an amazing. Um, Kind of support tool for kids to to speak to peers around the world and and yeah they they chat as they would in any um, you know any kind of other um, text based messaging um, but it's a lot more um, animated it's safe and it's been designed for them and focused on on providing them with the support they need so within the platform we also have um, a communication support tool which is called the Sentence Maker so. Children who are in lower levels of their language um, skills and language acquisition can use a sentence maker to help them construct questions and sentences and to, to provide support as they in, engage in this in the chat.
0: I'm kind of imagining these avatars kind of like bit where you create your own little character. Is that right? Um, they look more like... Um, <laughs> I'd say they're
1: they're more animated than Bitmojis. They they look like they could be a Disney movie oh, wow. or a um, I don't know. A, any, they look like they could be out of an animated series. So they're quite um, elaborate. have these big heads and yeah. I mean, um, a little bit more child friendly, child focused. <laughs> I would say than than the Bitmoji. But yeah. Something like that.
0: Very cool, very cool. And there's obviously a huge interest around technology and technology with future generations, it is inevitable and it's just how we start to adopt it and use it and embrace it. So I'd love to get your opinion and your thoughts. I'm sure you get this all the time. What you think the key benefits of using technology within the children's educational space are because I'd imagine... There's a lot of people who aren't for technology.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the, the benefits are kind of all across the board, I mean, countless benefits. I'll highlight some of the key ones. So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind and that is really aligned with our focus as a company is data and research. So using technology means that what we are building for children can be a lot more uh, research-based. And we can collect that research live and improve our solutions much more quickly than before. Um, You know, being able to collect data on the child's behavior within a platform, understanding when they hit a wall, when they're fatigued, and when they're tired of trying and and are starting to kind of lose the will to carry on um, and and introduce support interventions, um, understanding which activities are more effective, understanding which which particular games are reinforcing learning the most and and really using the data that is being collected on the child's behavior and aggregating that across all users and then using that information to inform product development and doing that in an agile way means that the solutions that children are spending their time on, the technologies children are spending their time on, um, will just continue to get better and smarter. And so uh, children are actually Having more effective learning experiences that can be customized to their particular needs and based on, on, on real data. Um, so I think that's kind of efficacy research and data would be my first kind of advantage of technology. Um, the, second, the second thing I'll say is about access. So, you know, what we've been working on and what we've built is based on um, a certain theory of, of learning and a methodology that we have now proven. And that methodology just wouldn't be wouldn't be something that we could allow all the world's children to access if we didn't provide a solution that was technology enabled. So you know you often hear about people speaking about ed tech or education technology together, and we really believe that we are a children's first company, and what that means is that we're focused on what are the methodologies that in the environments that actually encourage learning? And then how can we use technology to deliver that? So, so it's you know, it's, it's not so much ed tech, it's, it's education, and then technology becomes the enabler of those methodologies. And, and you know, the second kind of key theme there is, is around access. So, you know, allowing as many of the world's children as possible to access the best methodologies. Um, kind of access and scale sort of go together, but as a company, when you're you know, in, in in its early stages, it's it's difficult to reach and distribute your product to thousands and thousands of children around the world. So, kind of from an operational and a business perspective, um, technology also enables your, you to scale what you're building and to to you know again I, as I said, it's kind of linked linked to access. Um, so yeah, so I would say efficacy. Access and scale are, I would say, kind of the three, three big advantages is to education um, having technology behind it. And and I kind of separate those two things from each other because it really is about education first, and then what are the ways that we can use technology to help us, you know, reach as many children as possible. And you know, this is kind of a, in the views of some, some nice to have, but I think it, and it ties in that. Technology also means that, and it's kind of technology and um, connectivity and um, the word I'm looking for, um, the speed with which things can download. I can't think of the word <laughs> now, but it means that we can use richer content to imaginatively engage children. And I think it's uh, kind of specific to children and, and and to the work that we're in, so kind of beyond this technology and education, but in our specific context, technology allows us to be able to deliver rich and imaginative content so that children are really engaged and excited to, to be learning.
0: Yeah. What about the balance between embracing technology and using it for really, really important things like the education um, of children? And then they also want they also want to access TV and that fun time and video games and, and things like that. So what do you think the balance is in embracing the advancements of technology, using it so that we can see really, really great results and kids are highly engaged and get a lot from it, but also from the fun time and then getting outdoors and being active? What is the balance, do you think, and for any parents concerned about what the limit is or what they should encourage their kids to do or how, how much they should get outside and versus being on tech through the educational processes, but also just for, you know, watching TV and, you know, having a bit of fun. Yeah. I mean, I mean,
1: when I was growing up, I think screen time focused was video games and, and television. So, you know, it's, I think it's, it's always within the responsibility of the parents to, to kind of monitor screen time, I believe. And, and to be very frank, it's, it's something that comes up for us all the time. And, and, and something that, you know, my personal belief is, it's the responsibility of technologists, entrepreneurs, and folks who are creating children's content to think about its purpose and its efficacy and create create environments for children to actually be able to empower themselves, to be able to contribute and add value to children. And it's, you know, on the other side of that, it's, it's the responsibility of the parents also to know where their children are spending their time because, you know, we endeavor to always think about um, how we can contribute, and if there's a new feature being developed or a tool being um, considered for our product roadmap, thinking about what is that impact going to be educationally for the child, and will that engage them further in the methodology that we know is proven and works. But not every company um, necessarily has that rigor. There are companies that are strictly focused on gaming, and, and that's incredibly engaging and fun for children. And the truth is, there's really no simple answer. And I, I believe it's really the responsibility of you know, individuals like myself to build products that that work, that are effective, and that you know kind of say um, say what they are on the tin, and then deliver deliver what they say they intend to deliver, so that parents can then make informed decisions on where they want their children to spend time online. Um, because I don't think, unfortunately, screens are going anywhere. Um, and and fortunately, some of us are using that that ad- advance in technology, if you will, um to empower children and And I think you know hopefully parents are are thinking consciously about you know children spending time outdoors, children spending time in person with with peers and socializing and and kind of playing without technology, and that when they are spending time on the screens that there is a healthy balance between fun screen time. And fun and effective and educational screen time, and and it's a really tough one to answer. All I can say is, you know, we're doing our best to um, deliver product that we believe is adding value for children, and it's really for the parents to decide how they want how they want to raise their children, and and what what works in the particular context of that individual child and what their needs are. So, sits
0: a tricky one. Mm, absolutely. And it is really, really interesting stuff. I find it quite fascinating and, you know, would love to know more. And people can find out jumping on your website at Little Bridge. And it's really obvious, Layla, that you do have a passion, you know, to help children and to help the next generation, to help people around you because not only are you doing the work within Little Bridge um, and all this exciting space, but you also uh, was the founder and you're currently the co-chair of NextGen Gen. London and NextGen Europe, which is UNICEF's Young Professionals Network and Steering Committee, which is amazing and huge. How did this come about and where did the passion come from to start and be part of something like this?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the I'll, I'll kind of speak about a, a bit of a personal story of how I ended up being so connected and grounded and and children and, and it'll all kind of, I guess, come together. But um, I spent quite a few years in, um, in in Tehran. I went to primary school in Tehran and, and across the street from our family home was this beautiful home that um, had numbers of young men, um, disabled young men living inside. And One afternoon, one of our our dogs got out and ran across the road, which, um, you know, it's a Middle Eastern country, and dogs are not really a common thing to have, nor are they really necessarily encouraged or allowed. And my brother and I both kind of panicked. We were young, and we ran across the road to go collect the dog. Um, And basically, while we were over collecting um, collecting the dog, we... um, realized that the young men in the house were very young and <laughs> younger than I had realized kind of glancing across the road and kind of got really present to the fact that these young men were handicapped and there was of them missing limbs and arms and and I kind of came back home and just asked and started trying to understand what had happened and it turned out that um, many of these young men were um, in the Gulf War and had been handicapped um, and disabled because of their um, their kind of time serving the country. And it, it just started to kind of click for me that not all young people have um, the safety and the security that necessarily we've been afforded. And and we we're very lucky, my, my brother and I, and, and that we kind of traveled quite a bit. And when we traveled, we didn't travel in, um, you know, in a necessarily luxurious way with blinders on. Our parents kind of showed us everything. And a few years passed and we were in Thailand. And again, um, we were kind of in a part of Bangkok that wasn't necessarily kind of the most um, manicured part of the city. And I remember looking out the taxi window on our way home from dinner and just sa- saying to my mother, why are there so many young girls so kind of bare in the streets and with so much makeup on? I just couldn't understand. I think I must've been 13 or 14. And my mother explained to me that in some countries, um, very young girls are, um, kind of part of an entire industry where, um, you know, I, I feel kind of, kind of shy to say it, but part of sex trafficking and prostitution and um, an industry that is kind of a shadow industry where we live, where you you don't see it in the in, in the streets. And we were living in the states at this point. Um, and the, some of these young girls are possibly um, um, prostitutes. And I just couldn't couldn't believe it, and couldn't wrap my mind around how such like such horrible things could happen to such young people, and so this kind of started to brew for me. Um, and we came back back to the states, and I kind of went went to school <laughs> up in arms and went and found my high school principal, and said, "We've got to do something about this." And and so I kind of started my first organization that was all that was solely focused on um, the trafficking of children. Um, in high school. And we did fundraising and advocacy. And I started to really kind of stand for this in my school and in my community. And and it, none of it was really planned. It just kind of happened. And I think when you see things and when you're, you know, it, parents have honest conversations with you about what's happening, you are able to to just do what feels right for you. And And so that's kind of where my story started and kind of Continued that throughout high school and university, I was really involved with um, fundraising for uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and, and philanthropy philanthropy um, for my kind of sorority, my campus institution. And 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 then when I got out of university, I just I, I knew I needed to kind of find my way back into into development and into the, the causes that you know kind of sit at the core of my belief system, which you know I believe that every child is entitled to um, a safe and a kind of comfortable um, space to grow and to thrive, and and I believe education is fundamental to the success of every human being, and and not just learning math and science sciences, but you know really really building well-rounded people. And at the time, I had A couple of friends who were involved with fundraising for UNICEF in the States and kind of watching from afar thinking, you know, what is it that I can do? And when I moved to London now five years ago, I, with support from a UNICEF director in New York who I'd met while I was living in New York City, I approached UNICEF in the UK and said, listen, I'd love to create something um, that allows young people, young professionals to incubate fundraising ideas for UNICEF, advocate for UNICEF and really be a stand for the work that UNICEF is doing and, and, and start their own projects and their own work to actually contribute value. So, you know, our kind of key aim is to build a bridge for young people to be able to cross over and, and add value for UNICEF and their different partners. And the way in which that works is, you know, I believe people have a lot of value to contribute, and not just financial value. And um, so we, we do pro bono work. We work with UNICEF's advocacy team. Um, we act as a bit of a, um, as a bit of a kind of incubator, if you will. So folks on the team will have fundraising ideas, and or in the community will have fundraising ideas, and they'll come forward and they'll share those ideas and will help them to test the idea and then if we find that the idea is successful we will put in place the operations to help scale that idea. So we've had a couple of um kind of examples of that in the last couple of years and and really what what we're focused on is allowing allowing individuals you know in their 20s and 30s in London to to have a way that they can contribute, and it's been it's been really fun and really empowering, and um, has taken me out to the field a couple of times where I've been able to, you know, use some of the skills I've been building and consulting and in, in children's education to actually mm. add value in that way. And and we've launched a, a similar um, model in Paris, which my um, co-chair Hortense is running, and that's that's thriving, and we're now. Um, launching in Oslo and in a few different cities in Italy, and um, yeah, it's 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 clearly something that resonates with people um, in in the age demographic who have a, a particular kind of connection to wanting to contribute to the world and and don't necessarily want that to be the only thing that they do in life. So it's a, it's a great way for people to you know have a full time career that might not be directly related to impact and or education or, you know, the the schemes that we hear about in the sustainable development goals, but then be able to kind of turn around and have this outlet for contributing to the world. And so I think that's why it's been kind of thriving and and growing naturally. Sometimes I hear about projects happening that I didn't even know (laughs) were happening, which is, I think... What for me, what success looks like is when this, the thing has outgrown you. Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. There's, a, I'd imagine this 13 year old Layla and, um, and standing up for something that you believe in or something that you don't think is quite right and wanting to make a right. And there's very much a bit of Megan Markle about this story. And, you know, I just got up, but to think <laughs> of her and what she's doing and then, um, you know, on all the brilliant work that you do through, you know, not just Little Bridge, but also, um, yeah, Next Generation Europe as well. Now, we are running out of time, but I have one question. I know that you're doing, you do lots of projects throughout London, and there is one story that I'd love to hear a little bit about, and it has got to do with um, a man called Mud and his uh, Syrian kitchen. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so serendipitously, one of our funny how everything kind of comes to circle, but one of the um, projects that NextGen um, has been kind of running for the last couple of years um, is something called Cook for Syria, which actually came over to Australia um, last year and has done, has done really well there. Um, one of our committee members and another of our um, community members who's now a very active leader... Um, uh, Serena again, and Clerkenwell boy who's a, who's a kind of well-known food blogger, um, came to came to me a couple years ago um, with this idea for a series of supper clubs. And basically, without going too far into detail into Cook for Syria, it it kind of took off. Um, started with supper clubs, then the team ended up creating these beautiful cookbooks, and and then that, that team grew and. Um, we had loads of different chefs and bakers from all over the world join, and, and the cookbook became an international phenomenon. We sold tens of thousands of cookbooks, all for UNICEF, of course, all profits for UNICEF. And in the process of launching Cook for Syria, human rights activists reached out to um, to our team and said, listen, um, there is a, a Syrian refugee who is living in London. He had five businesses, restaurants, cafes, juice bars in 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 Syria. And in a matter of six days, all of these um, businesses were bombed to the ground. He's here, he has refugee status, and he would love to meet with um, the team and see if there's anything he can do. So Serena and I went over there for dinner one night um, to, to his home. And we were just astonished by the quality and the flavor and the attention to detail in the meal that we had and more importantly, the love and care with which Ahmad received us, with which his his family welcomed us, and we were both completely moved and and, and inspired. And and Serena kind of came away from that night thinking, how can I engage him and cook for Syria? And has done some great things with Ahmad and cook for Syria. And at some point in that dinner, I I turned around and said to him, what are you doing right now? Like what? How are you making ends meet in London? And he said, you know, I'm working in a car garage, I'm selling these cars, washing cars, like whatever I can do to kind of make ends meet. And I just asked him, what do you want to be doing? What's, what's your dream? What, what do you see for yourself? And he said, I, I want to have my own kitchen again. I want to have my own business again. And so I kind of went away. Serena and I had a couple of conversations. I then reached out to another friend, an entrepreneur, who um, is in the pop-up space, and they, they do pop-up um, retail and, and restaurant spaces. And then I came back to him out a week or so later and, and called him and said, Hey, listen, what do you think about doing a pop-up restaurant? And he said, what's well, a pop-up restaurant? What do you mean a pop-up restaurant? I said, it would be a short term restaurant. Um, the space would be totally donated and free. And we will put a team behind you to help with all the branding and help bring it to life. And you'd have your own restaurant again. And if the concept works, we'll see, we'll see what happens from there. So Ahmad was kind of, I think, shocked. I think he thought I was probably a bit crazy. And he said yes. And a few months later, we organized our first pop-up um, in Columbia Road in East London. And it was a huge success. It was fully sold out. We had to add a few extra days. Those were immediately sold out. And it's kind of become, I I think, a really powerful success story for kind of how the refugee community, um, can be supported by, by London entrepreneurs and the London community. And, you know, Ahmad has been, um, a kind of core part of Cook for Syria since he's been the head chef on countless of our supper clubs. He's kind of our go-to for most things, um, related to, um, events and, and food in, in, in London. He's built relationships across the community of, of, restaurants and chefs here and you know he's become a really dear friend um and and it's been it's been a really really wonderful experience getting to support him and and his family and and it's it's uh, kind of it all comes full circle because you know Ahmad's three daughters are also um users of Little Bridge um because Little Bridge is um part of our kind of it's a for profit company but we also are very socially um driven and so we Working with the Home office and have offered little bridge for free to any refugees who've resettled in the uk and so we've got kind of seven hundred um, refugees signed up on um, the the platform today and not not just Syrian refugees by the way um, and it's kind of a really beautiful circle of how all my projects have come together and and the symbiotic relationships between between the different projects and between the incredible people that I get to work with as I, you know, create, create things in the world. So it's been, it's been an amazing experience and Ahmad's uh, become a very good friend and yeah, it's been a, it's been quite the ride the last couple of years.
0: I bet. And you can jump on uh, uh Instagram. It's Mud Syrian kitchen and, you know, jumping on there and having a look and it looks so authentic and just so real. And mind you, it looks very delicious as well. Um, which I just (laughs) love the look of. I have one final question, and it will be hard, I would imagine, because you have um, been involved in so many different things and so much would inspire you. But Layla, can you give me today one quote that does inspire you or that you live by? Yeah,
1: so you're right to say that there are many (laughs) different things that, that inspire, but I think what works for the theme of what we've been talking about today and what drives a lot of my decisions on um, the projects I get involved with is, is a quote by Einstein, which is essentially, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And I really believe that to make an impact in, in the world today, to contribute to society today and to actually help address some of the challenges and problems we're seeing um, in the media and in the news, you have to move a level above um, or move to a different level, um, if you will, because above implies a hierarchy, but, you know, just, let's say, to a different level. And I really believe that the empowerment of others and education are the way that we can move to a different level of consciousness to help address um, the things that we're seeing in the world today that maybe aren't working, that are not promoting values of global citizenship and empathy, And and, yeah, that's kind of what drives Drives my work and is why I, you know, have my um, projects that I do, that I have in my life today, and um, it's it's why I've dedicated, you know, most of my, my my time and energy to Little Bridges because it's it's it kind of fulfills that that exact value and belief.
0: Mm. And I mean, I just want to say thank you for all you know sharing all of this. But also, I mean, all the work that you do I think is just, you know, it's exceptional and, um, you know, I think if people just gave back just the slightest bit that you do that, you know, that makes such, such a big um, impact. So thank you for sharing just a little tiny bit of your, your story. I mean, I would love to... Uh, ask you more questions. I know you've lived in parts all over the world and you have so many really cool stories um, and plus so much more that you do. But that is all we've got time for today. And thank you so much for sharing, Leila. Uh, Leila. Thank you, Jenna. It's been great speaking with you. And that is another 21st Century Women podcast brought to you by the one and only John Rowland Media Productions. I hope you had a great time, enjoyed listening, and I'll catch you next week. Cheers.